The text for our sermon this afternoon is Acts chapter 13, verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. These words are found in the sermon of the Apostle Paul in which he is defending the thesis that Jesus is the long-awaited promised Messiah. One of the most accepted and unquestioned axioms of the ancient world was that fathers are always greater than their children. Every generation felt it their duty to live up to the deeds of their ancestors. And regardless of their achievements, each generation felt as if they had failed to reach their father's greatness. And it is against this assumption that Paul is arguing the superiority of Jesus. The Christ was to be of the seed of David according to the flesh. But it's important that people understood that that didn't mean that David was superior to his great son. Our text falls right into the climax of Paul's closing statement, and his argument is essentially this. Jesus is greater than David, even according to the flesh, because David died and is buried right here in our city, and anyone who wants to go can visit his grave. But Jesus died and rose again. He is greater than David, for death was not able to hold him. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to three things that our text teaches us. First of all, David served his generation according to the will of God. Secondly, the believer's death is likened to sleep. And thirdly, Christ's resurrection guarantees his people's resurrection. It's a common thing for people to say, we all have our purpose on earth. I think this is far truer than any of us realize. People often say it to bolster someone's self-esteem, which means they probably don't believe it, but it sounds nice. But our text tells us that David served his own generation by the will of God, and there is a lot in that short sentence. First of all, David served. David was a king, an absolute monarch. He didn't have a parliament to rein him in if his orders were unpleasant to anyone. His word was law. If he commanded something, it got done. And yet, in God's economy, David was only a servant. In an objective sense, from God's point of view, David was merely his servant. But even in a subjective sense, from David's own point of view... He was a servant. David repeatedly acknowledges this about himself. In the book of the Psalms alone, David calls himself the servant of the Lord 72 times. Next, our text tells us that David served his own generation. In other words, he served those who were nearest him. He served those whom God had entrusted to his care. I know it's very common to hear and see pleas for charities in far-flung places around the world, but our scripture teaches us that our primary duty is to our own generation. In other words, our families, immediate and extended, and our own communities. Helping those in need is good, but it is sin when it comes at the expense of one's own generation, and it's an even greater sin when one gives aid to total strangers who are continents away while one's own are in need. The old saying is true. Charity begins at home. Every single one of David's great and heroic deeds 
were done in service to God, first and foremost, but also in service to the welfare of His people. And the amazing thing about it is this. Here we are, 6,500 miles away and 3,000 years later, and David is now serving us by the record of his life and the psalms which God gave him. Isn't that incredible? Thirdly, David's life of service, our text was, by the will of God. Now, how significant is that? It was God's will that David serve him. And there is nothing greater than to be called to serve God. In Psalm 65, verse 4, David writes, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. Psalm 4, 3 says, The Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. And number 16, 5 says, The one he chooses, he will bring near to himself. There is no greater thing than to be called a servant of God. First and foremost, it means that God has chosen you unto salvation. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? David himself said, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, one day as a servant of the Lord is better than a thousand days as a bigwig in the world. Better to be a nobody whom God has chosen than to be the most famous and wealthiest person in the world. And finally, note that, that word after. The text says, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell on sleep. That word after tells us that God has an appointed time for all men. No one dies before their time. Now, we say that when people die young, but that's because we misinterpret God's works. We think that because people commonly grow old before they die, that this is the only right way. But such is not the case. If a sparrow does not fall apart from God's will, and if he has numbered all the hairs of our head, then surely he has an appointed day and hour for everyone to die. And Scripture actually asserts this. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. That word appointed speaks of a plan. God has meticulously planned all events that take place, including the day and time of our departure from this earth. The second point our text teaches us is that the believer's death is akin to sleep. One of the most common words the Bible uses to describe the death of the believer is the word sleep. It's one of those things that, that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It is everywhere in Scripture. An unbeliever dies, and the Bible says he died. He went to the grave. He perished. His memory was blotted out from the earth. But when a servant of the Lord dies, we read, he slept and was gathered unto his fathers. When Jesus brought the daughter of Jairus back to life, he said, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel sleepeth. In John 11, Jesus tells his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. But they thought he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. And then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14 reads, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And notice that the text speaks of those who die in the Lord, that they sleep in Jesus. When Paul speaks of the eyewitnesses of the risen Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, He was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. I think I provided enough scripture to back up this claim. When speaking of the death of the believers, the Bible almost always uses the word sleep. And the point we're trying to make is this. While the Bible never minimizes the reality of death, nor the loss felt by the bereaved, it always speaks of the death of the believers as analogous to sleep because the death of the believer, while real, is merely temporary. Because our blessed Lord Jesus underwent death on our behalf and overcame it, we too will overcome it and rise from our graves at the last day. And that, in fact, is the third thing that our text teaches us, that Christ's resurrection guarantees His people's resurrection. Question 45 of our Heidelberg Catechism asks, What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? Answer, first, by His resurrection He has overcome death, that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He hath purchased for us by His death. Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Let's flesh that out a bit. First, Christ's resurrection from the dead was absolute proof of His moral perfection, His sinlessness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If death could have held Jesus, that would have proven him to be a sinner. But his resurrection testifies to his perfect righteousness. He stayed dead for three days, long enough to dispel any silly objections that he wasn't really dead, but not long enough for his body to begin to decompose. When God calls us to be his servants, his spirit unites us to Christ and applies to us all the benefits of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. The perfect righteousness of Christ is what He has promised to all that belong to Him. And His resurrection proves both that such righteousness exists and that He has the right to grant it to whomever He pleases. Secondly, the, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and raises us into newness of life. The believer lives as a believer. His life is characterized by trust in Christ's righteousness and a humble gratitude for it. In our baptism, we are engrafted into Christ's death. Romans 6.4 says, Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. The Christian life is a new life, and it is only possible because Jesus rose from the dead. 
Thirdly, the resurrection of Christ, says the catechism, is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Romans 8.11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The same Spirit that dwells in Christ dwells in all His people. When the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, it's using this metaphor because it is true. One spirit or soul animates a body. My soul is the the only soul my body has, and it animates every part of my body. And in exactly the same way that one soul animates one body, Christ is the head of the church, His body, and one spirit dwells in us. Our union with Christ is as real and personal as is the union of your right arm with the rest of your body. Now, if the head has been resurrected, how can the rest of the body not be resurrected? That makes sense, doesn't it? That's the Holy Spirit's point in this passage. We know that our blessed resurrection is guaranteed because Christ, our head, has been resurrected from the dead and dwells in heaven for us. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You farmers understand that expression, first fruits. Just before, the, just before the harvest season begins in earnest, some plants have ripe fruit before the rest of the crop. That harvest was called the first fruits. And the Bible interprets this phenomenon as a promise. Those corn stalks or wheat stalks or olive trees or grapevines that were ripe and harvest ready first, <coughs> excuse me, were a promise that there was a fuller harvest coming. You knew that your labors were successful even before the harvest was truly ready. The first fruits were like an appetizer. They were a pledge that a proper meal is on its way. It's an unpleasant thing to think about, but bodies bereft of their souls decompose. Our text says this about David. He was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. And that statement is made with Psalm 16 in mind. In Psalm 16, we read of Christ's resurrection in these words, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Christ himself is the speaker of these words, which affirm his deity. He is the holy one. And also affirm his resurrection. He will certainly die, but he will not be dead long enough for decay to set in. Christ's resurrection is a promise for more than just our souls. For we are composite beings, composed of body and soul. When we die, our soul goes immediately into the presence of God. And because we are redeemed by Christ, our bodies which are redeemed and united to Christ... Our bodies rest in their graves until the final day. Christ is the first fruits of all them that sleep. His resurrection is a promise, a pledge, an earnest, a guarantee that all those who sleep in Jesus will rise. The proof that our brother Laverne will rise from the dead is the fact that Jesus, his Lord, rose from the dead. We can as truly say of our dear Laverne what Paul says of David. After he served his generation by the will of God, he fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers. Let us pray.
Almighty and most merciful Father, what is man, every living man, even at his best estate, but altogether vanity? What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? The great and the small, the wise and the foolish, the good and bad, all yield up their spirits and go down to the grave. Thou art pleased, O God, to give us the advantage of seeing many taken away to their long home before us, and leavest us yet standing the living monument of thy goodness, with these opportunities to appear before thee in that day of grace which through the forbearance of our God is yet over us. O let us not be as the brutes that have no understanding without mindfulness of our mortality or consideration of our latter end, but in the death of others let us see, as in a mirror, our own frail and uncertain state in the present world. How slippery is our standing and how soon we must follow all the vast multitudes that are gone before us out of this land of the living. Oh, let us make full account of it and so live as one that surely expects to die, that when our own turn shall come, we may not go off with a heavy heart, but depart in peace and sleep in Jesus having our souls safe in thy hands and our bodies resting in hopes of gloriously rising at the last day through him who is the resurrection and the life, our blessed Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we are bold to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.